Good evening, and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, March 10th, 2022. I am so happy to be back with you tonight to be able to study together, and I am grateful to every one of you for being here tonight. Before we begin, I have two short announcements. One is, it gives me great pleasure to invite everybody to attend our fabulous Purim party coming up on Purim night, Wednesday night, March 16th. It will be a beautiful night with music, with entertainment, with a delicious dinner. There is no charge, but registration is required. And I urge you, please look at the emails that we're sending or go to our website or call our office. We would love to have you. Also, please note that after tonight, our schedule is going to change quite a bit over the next few weeks due to Purim and to Pesach. On the email that I sent, I gave the complete schedule through the end of Pesach and back to 7 p.m. But basically, we're not going to be meeting next week because it's Purim. And then after that, we're switching to 8 p.m., there are a couple of other changes in the schedule, and then at the end of April, we come back to 7 p.m. on Thursday nights. Again, all of the schedule is in the emails, on our website, on our Facebook page, so please take a look at that and make sure that you are um, current with the schedule for that night. It's a bit of uh, changing. Uh, it's inevitable. It happens twice a year at these times, and... Um, but we will continue according to that schedule. We have a big problem with Purim this year. Rabbi Shlomo Aviner, who is a well-known and respected rabbi in Israel, has issued a call to not eat hamantashen this year. And Rabbi Avinar wrote that he is telling people not to eat hamantashen this year for three reasons. The first reason is Rabbi Avinar feels that there is no genuine custom to have hamantashen on Purim. It's not mentioned in any early source. It's a relatively recent practice. And in Rabbi Avinar's opinion, it's simply a mistake based on a German pastry filled with poppy seeds called Montaschen, that people got confused and started to call it Hamantaschen. And so there is no authentic connection to Purim, and therefore there's no reason to use it on Purim. It is just some kind of recent practice, not really deserving to emulate. That's reason number one. Reason number two, he says, Hamantaschen are unhealthy. They contain large amounts of sugar and oil. And Rav Avinar quotes the Rambam, Maimonides, who says that a person should eat healthy food. It is God's will that we should eat healthy foods. And Hamantaschen is not healthy. Lastly, Rabbi Avinar points out that this year, 
in Israel, there is in many places a threefold increase in the price of Hamantashen. A 300% rise in price over last year. And he quotes the Mishnah Brura, who rules as follows. If the price of fish goes up, and you know that there is a custom, an ancient custom, to have fish on Shabbos. But if the price of fish goes up so high that many people can't afford it, it's the right thing for the rabbis to prohibit it, to tell people no fish on Shabbos until the prices come down. So he reasons, if for a food like fish on Shabbos, which does actually have a basis in Jewish custom, we would say it's worthwhile to boycott it until the prices come down. Certainly, hamantashen. We can go without it in order to help bring the price down in the future. Okay? <clears throat> That's Rabbi Aviner. I want to assure every one of you that at a death, we will be serving simple, delicious, modestly priced Hamantashen this year. And I think that you can feel free and comfortable to have a little. This Shabbos, we have a special Torah reading. It's the Shabbos before Purim. And we read Parsha Zachar, the portion of Zachar, remembering, remembering the enmity between ourselves and Amalek. This is the Torah's account of the attack by the people of Amalek against the Jewish people for no reason, just after we left Egypt. And God commands that at some time in the future, we will have an obligation to wipe out Amalek. And until then, we have a biblical obligation to once a year, publicly and collectively, remember this enmity that we have against pure evil. We fulfill this mitzvah by reading this passage on this Shabbos, the Shabbos before Purim, because we understand that Haman was a descendant of Amalek. Now, currently, there is no identifiable people who are Amalek. So, going to war against them for now is just theoretical. But when it is actionable, the Rambam, Maimonides, famously writes the following law. And that is, before going to battle against Amalek, like going to battle against any enemy, first, we must try to negotiate peace. And if we try to negotiate peace and we offer to make peace, that's the preferred resolution. Only if our offer is rejected 
and the opposing army continues to come against us, then we go to war. But we always try peace first. There is a risk, though, in any attempt at peace, because to try peace requires trust. <clears throat> and what happens if you offer peace and you are tricked and you are fooled and you are harmed? There is always a risk in trying for peace, in exercising trust. Risk is unavoidable. But the obligation to pursue peace means that that is a risk that under certain circumstances we must endure. While we were in Israel last week, I heard the following story from Sarah Tuttle Singer. And it's something that happened on Jerusalem's light rail. So if you know, if you've been there, Jerusalem now has this light rail system that goes through the center of town. It's marvelous. It's quiet. It's clean. It's comfortable. It's so easy to use. It's a pleasure. It's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So if you've been on the light rail, you'll recognize this. There is a section where the against both sides of the bus, of the, of the rail car, uh, there is a chair that flips up. And there's a sign above that, that spot that has a wheelchair uh, emblem. And the idea is that that spot is reserved for a person who comes in on a wheelchair. And so since the chair is, is up like this, there's space and a person in a wheelchair can be able to accommodate themselves there. There's one on this side and one opposite on the other side. In addition to a person on a wheelchair, a person with a stroller, which is certainly very, very common in Jerusalem, like all of Israel, person in a stroller is also allowed to use that spot because the, the parent can sit down, the adult can sit down, and there's room for the stroller to, to be located and not be in the middle of the row and people can pass by. Okay, that's the way it works. Sarah sees two women, with a, each with a stroller, struggling to get through the crowd onto the train. And they take these two seats, one on either side of the train car, facing each other. One woman is wearing a hijab. The other woman is wearing a shaitel. Both of the women are dressed very modestly with their arms and legs covered. And they each took the seat opposite each other. And they put their strollers in the middle between them. The strollers were facing each other. Each one had a little boy. Both of the boys had brown eyes and pink cheeks and curly hair. 
They could have been brothers. And while their mothers stared straight ahead, not making eye contact with the other, not acknowledging the other, looking straight as if the other was invisible, the two boys smiled at one another and chatted back and forth as only little babies can, but everybody should. In Israel especially, trust is hard for adults. It's not so hard for children. So let me tell you our story. We were at the hotel. It was in the afternoon. We had spent the day walking a great distance, a, a few miles in the various places that we went around Jerusalem. We ended up at the hotel. From the hotel, we had to get to Me'a Sha'arim. It's like a 45-minute walk. And we were done. We were, we were tired. Our feet were sore. We, 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 could, we couldn't walk. So, so we took a taxi. And if you can uh, imagine the, the area, if you've been there in your mind's eye. So just at the roundabout where the buses and taxis come at the entrance to the hotel. So we got in a taxi. Taxi driver was an Arab man which was no problem for us. And we told him where we wanted to go. Thank God we have the great privilege. We spend a lot of time in Jerusalem over many, many years. We used to live there. We know it well. We know the area well. We know the directions well. And as you know, you come out of this gate, you make a right-hand turn, and then you take this single lane road all the way down to the bottom of the hill, and then you go into downtown Jerusalem. This lane of traffic was completely blocked, not moving. It was backed up all the way from the, from the light, a kilometer away, more than that. Backed up all the way to the hotel, not moving at all. Later we learned what happened was there was... Um, um, Jerusalem has these uh, double buses. I, I'm, I'm sure there's a term. Two long buses, two buses that are connected like with an accordion in the middle. I'm sure there's a term for it. And what happened was there was an accident. No one was hurt, but there was an accident and the two parts of the bus split. So it just, just snarled traffic all around for hours and hours and hours. We're sitting in the, in the taxi. Taxi driver sees we're not moving, and the taxi driver turns left. So I said to the taxi driver, I don't think, in Hebrew, I said, I don't think this is the right way. And he said to me, you have to trust me. Trust me. The traffic over there is backed up. If we stay there, we'll be there for an hour and a half without moving at all. 
Trust me, this is a shortcut. It's going to take us all the way around. Meanwhile, if you're following that left-hand turn, that is Ir David. That's East Jerusalem. Now, I know my way around, but I have never been in those streets as Ir David descends into East Jerusalem. And I will admit that I was a little bit nervous because that was not exactly the neighborhood that I felt most comfortable being in. And the driver said to me, to us, he said, don't you trust me? Well, what was I going to say? So we're going down these streets and it's narrower, narrower, narrower. And then finally, we get to a spot where the traffic stops. So now, first of all, I'm still caught in this traffic that's not going to move. But the difference is now I'm way into East Jerusalem, way out of my comfort zone. We got a little bit more nervous at that point. And then we see in front of us, people start getting out of their cars. So we said to our driver, what's going on? Why, why are these people getting out of their cars? So he says, don't worry. I promise you, everything is okay. Don't worry. And he shows us his phone. The, the driver of the car in front of us was his friend. And he sent a photo to our driver of the car in front of him. It's two cars ahead. So he's showing us here. This is the car. It broke down. The car overheated. Two cars ahead of us. The car overheated. So the traffic has got to go around the car, but there's only one lane. So people are taking turns. Who's passing? Who's passing when? And he says, see, it's it's fine. It's It's just this car that's... It's not the traffic. It's just this car that's broken down. We'll get past it in a minute and you'll see we're going to go fast after that. And uh, that is what happened. Um, after a few minutes, we passed this broken down car. And after that, it was completely open and we sailed through because all the traffic was jammed up over here and we sailed around. We got to our destination Um very, very quickly. He saved us a gigantic amount of time and money. And as he dropped us off, he asked us again, now do you trust me? And we said, yeah, now we trust you. But that's the thing about trust. Trust needs effort. And it needs risk-taking on both sides. It's inevitable. Now, each situation needs to be evaluated on its own circumstances. I'm not saying we did the right thing. I'm not saying that we did the wrong thing. And I don't know what I would do in a slightly different situation. But remembering Amalek this Shabbos, and remembering the ruling of the Rambam, we should also remember that our goal must always be peace.
and achieving peace? Achieving trust will always require risk. <clears throat> okay. Let's talk about the Pura Megillah, Megillah's Esther, the Book of Esther. Purim is unique in that it is the only Jewish holiday that commemorates events that took place outside of Israel. I'm not counting Pesach because that's before the Jewish people reached Israel. But once the Jewish people reached Israel, Purim is the only holiday that commemorates events outside of Israel. In other words, the message of Purim is directed to Jews in Golos, in exile. It's directed to us. The message of Purim is more directly related to us than any other holiday because it too, like us, it too took place during Galus, during exile. And Purim is an attempt to teach us of how to maneuver, how to successfully navigate the experience of exile. In the Megillah, there are three different terms that are used for the king, who is one of the central characters of the story. His name is Ahasuerus. Sometimes in the Megillah, he's called Ahasuerus. That's his name. Sometimes he's called Hamelech, the king, because everyone knows that's the king. And sometimes he is called Hamelech Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus. Three different ways of referring to him throughout the Megillah. Achashverosh, Hamelech Achashverosh, or just plain Hamelech. Our rabbis tell us something very profound. In the Megillah's Esther, in the book of Esther, wherever the word Hamelech by itself occurs, so it refers to the king, meaning Ahasuerus. It's as if it said Ahasuerus, no difference. But when it says Hamelech by itself, there is a second layer of meaning. It also refers to Hamelech Ha'olam, the king of the universe. It refers to God. In other words, the book of Esther is actually two parallel stories. One story is about Esther and Haman and Ahasuerus and Mordechai and all of that drama that we know so well and we're going to relive on Purim. 
But there's a second parallel story that's going on at the same time. It's a story about our relationship with God. It's an allegory. It's a hidden story. It's not overtly referred to. Unless you happen to know this lesson, you wouldn't even know that it's there. And in fact, this fits in with the theme of Purim, which is to look below the surface. The surface can be very misleading. And that's the reason for the custom to wear masks, to wear costumes, to remind ourselves that what we see on the surface is not always the actual reality. Now, this second layer of the story, by understanding every instance where the word Hamelech by itself refers to God, is a completely different way of reading and understanding the Megillah. And I invite you this year, when you read or hear the Megillah being read, see if you can keep this in mind and think about what is the story that is being told if I consider that every time the word Hamelech by itself is used, it's referring to God. And it's really a story about our relationship with God, but importantly, our relationship with God in exile. We have another work like this, Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, which is also an allegory about the relationship between God and the Jewish people through different eras of history. But Megillus Esther is also an allegory about our relationship with God. And it is so applicable to us today because it is describing the characteristics of our relationship with God while we are in exile. It leads to gigantic revelations to actually read through the Megillah in this manner. And I invite you to do it. What I would like to do with you now is just to demonstrate this for you with one small passage, a passage that seems very minor. It seems... It's often overlooked, but let's see the message that it's really teaching us. So at the beginning of the story, a little, not so much at the beginning, towards the middle, Haman has Ahasuerus issue this terrible decree against the Jewish people and all the Jewish people are going to be destroyed. Mordechai finds out about it. Mordechai sends a message to Esther to command her Esther, you have to go run to the king and beg him and beseech him on behalf of your people. The Jewish people are going to be wiped out. You, Esther, the queen, you've got to go run now. Beg 
beseech, cry, save your people? Esther responds, Every single citizen in this entire empire knows. That any person who would dare to approach the king, to his inner courtyard, who has not been summoned, who has not been invited specifically, just to show up, Achas daso lahamis. They're killed immediately. I can't go to the king. I wasn't invited. And to go to the king without being invited means you're going to be killed. Levad me'asher yoshit lo ha'melech eshabit ha'zahav Except if the king would happen to extend his golden scepter towards you, which would indicate that he's going to allow you to come forward. But va'ani... I haven't even been invited to see the king for the last 30 days, so there is no way that I can go to beseech the king about anything because as soon as I approach, I'll get killed. On the level of the simple meaning of the text, We have a king, Ahasuerosh, who appears to be perhaps somewhat paranoid, doesn't let people come close to him. All right. Has a real kind of a control freak thing going on. Esther is intimidated. How is she going to be able to save her people when the king is so inaccessible? Okay. On the level of the pshat, where we're talking about Ahasuerosh as a man, that's the story. Now let's look at this same story and let's understand the word Hamelech to be referring to Melech Olam to God. Esther says to Mordechai, God is removed from us. God is uninterested in us. We're in exile. We're dispersed. Now there's a decree against us that we're going to be wiped out. God simply doesn't care about us anymore. You want me to go to God? He's not listening. And Esther reflects in her response to Mordechai the feeling of many, many people including many religious Jews, especially at certain times in the life of an individual or in the life of the Jewish people where we just don't see it. You tell us God is a loving God, a merciful God. We don't see it. We just don't think that's how it is. That's not the way God is acting towards us. God seems to want nothing to do with us. God seems to have this rule that we're not allowed to even approach. And I think if we're being honest, many of us can relate to having these feelings about God. I certainly relate to this. 
And I would say that this is one of the deepest questions that a thinking religious Jew will ever encounter. What if God really is not interested? What if God is really not there for me? But here comes the crucial point. The crucial point is that Esther is wrong. Esther had commanded, okay, have the whole Jewish people fast for three days, gather together and fast. On the third day, Esther dressed in garments of royalty. And she stood in the courtyard of the king. Just inside the doorway. And it was that when the Melech saw Esther, she found favor in his eyes. And the king did reach out his golden scepter. Notice, by the way, in this passage that I'm reading to you, how repetitious this word Hamelech over and over again. So much more so many more times than is actually necessary for the literary meaning. It just keeps repeating this word, Hamelech. The Melech this and the Melech that, the Melech this. And so he reached out the scepter for Esther to come close. Vatikrav Esther. Esther comes close. Esther approaches Hamelech. Vayomer lo Hamelech. And the Melech says to her, Malach Esther Hamalka, Umabakasha Seich, what do you want? What is your request? The answer is yes, in advance. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. I'll give you half of everything that I have. All you have to do is come close. All you have to do is ask. I'm here waiting waiting for you to come close to me. <coughs> the point is that the Melech, HaMelech, HaMelech HaOlam, does not respond as Esther anticipates. HaMelech says, God says, please come. I want you to come close. Please ask I want to help you. I want to assist you. I want to support you. I am listening to you. I am waiting for you. And if sometimes it seems the opposite, it's only because you are so far away. Come closer. The underlying theme of Purim starts from the historical fact that Purim is at the crossroads of Jewish history. Historically, Purim occurs after 
the first exile, the destruction of the first temple, and the exile of the Jewish people mostly to Bavel, Babylonia, which became Persia. And many people thought at that time, it's over. That's it. Temples destroyed. Jews are exiled. It's over. Finished. That relationship we have with God, with, with God, gone. Finished. The special place where we could meet God and see miracles, it's burned. A connection to the land of Israel that God promised us, promise over. It's, it. it's over. A lot of people felt like that. And it wouldn't be hard to understand feeling like that, having experienced the destruction of the temple, the exile of the Jewish people, and now they're living in exile. And now there's a decree that they're all going to be wiped out. What is so significant about Purim is that while the Jewish people was teetering on the edge of this crossroads, in fact, it was Purim that led to the return to Israel. It was the son or the grandson, depending on different opinions, of Esther and Ahasuerosh that gives permission to the Jewish people to come back to Israel and rebuild a second temple and have a second commonwealth. Yes, there will be different rules. Our sages tell us the word Esther, the name Esther is related to the phrase in the Torah, Hasterpanim. We were living at a time that at that time in exile, and we are living in this time, exile, is described as a period of Hesterpanim, a time when God's face is hidden, where God is silent. It's not the same kind of a relationship where there's a prophet every day and there are miracles and you see and you feel and you hear. It's a different kind of a relationship. Exile is tough. It's not the same. But silence is not absence. And this is what Purim is supposed to mean for every one of us each year when we celebrate and observe Purim and we absorb the narrative of this lower, of this deeper level, what the story is teaching us is you think you're in exile? Yes. You're dealing with Hester Punim, God is silent? Yes. But don't make the mistake of thinking that God doesn't want a connection. That's never true. God is saying to us right now the exact same words that Hamelech said to Esther. Come close. Don't stay at the door. I want you to come close. God wants us. God asks us to approach, to come close. God is waiting for our overture. And if it ever seems to any one of us that that is not true, that the door has shut and that the ears are closed, if it ever appears to us that way, it's our mistake. Because this is always true, even when we don't see it, even when it doesn't look like it. 
God always wants us close. That is the message of Purim, specifically for us outside of Israel in exile. Because ultimately, Purim teaches us that things are not always what they seem. This is a pervasive theme of Purim, as I mentioned before. Things are not what they seem. What's real appears to be a dream, and what's a dream appears to be real. On our recent trip to Israel, there was one thing I wanted to do that I did not succeed in doing. I have shared with you so many stories from Rabbi Melech Biederman, who lives in Bnei Brak. He teaches all over Israel. And I wanted to go hear him in person. And I tried. I, I really tried. I asked people. I reached out. I, But I was unsuccessful. I will try again. But while I was in Israel, I heard this story from Rabbi Biederman. Not in person, but this story is so magnificent and it is so applicable to our lives. And it is so connected to the theme of unreality in Purim. I must share it with you. So this is a story Rabbi Biederman heard many years ago. And it's a story he repeats often. You'll see why. And it's a story that he was told by an elderly rabbi in Israel. A well-respected rabbi. A rabbi with a huge family. With Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, more than a hundred. They should live and be well. He would say, I can go to any part of the land of Israel and there'll be some grandchildren of mine there. So he once told Rabbi Biederman, you see all these descendants of mine, all of these children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, more than a hundred. It's all because of one incident. What happened? So he tells the following story. This elderly rabbi tells about something that happened two weeks after his wedding, many, many, many years earlier, two weeks after his wedding, he was called by his mother-in-law, his new mother-in-law. There was a certain dispute that had arisen and his mother-in-law summonsed him to her home on a Tuesday afternoon. 
And when he arrived, it was just he and she, she started screaming at him and yelling at him and cursing him and insulting him. <sighs> Try to imagine what a young man who is married just two weeks and his mother-in-law is yelling and screaming and cursing and insulting. <sighs> how would you feel after that? How, how, can, how can you go on with the rest of your life after that? He was so shaken. He left his mother-in-law's house. He went directly to his rabbi's house because he knew he needed some advice. His rabbi was Rabbi Elia Roth, a wise and sensitive scholar. And this young man went directly from the mother-in-law's house to Rabbi Roth's house. He was shaking. And he told Rabbi Roth the whole story of what happened. Rebellious said to him, Does anybody else know about this? He says, No, no, no one knows. I, I left my mother-in-law's house. I came directly here. I didn't call anybody. I didn't tell anybody. My parents don't know. My wife doesn't know. Nobody knows. I came directly here. I didn't tell anybody. Are you sure that no one else knows what happens? Yes, I'm sure. I, I'm sure I told you what happened. I left her house. I came to you. I didn't speak to anyone in between. No one else knows. Rebellion said to him, listen to me very carefully. It was a dream. It didn't really happen. I want you, Rebellia said, I want you to decide in your mind it was a dream. Decide it. It did not actually happen. It was a dream. So now, all these years later, this elderly rabbi tells Rabbi Biederman, I listened to my rabbi. I decided it was a dream. It didn't happen. I decided I couldn't speak about it. I couldn't think about it because who dwells on their dreams? It's not reality. Everybody has dreams with crazy things in them. So I had a dream with some crazy stuff in it. Okay, now. Please listen carefully. Two weeks later, two weeks after the screaming incident, the mother-in-law calls this young man again and summons him again to her house. This time when he arrives, his mother-in-law said, I was, I'm sorry. I want to apologize. I want to ask for forgiveness. What I did was terrible. Please forgive me. He said, forgiveness for what? She said, two weeks ago, I was screaming at you. I was insulting you two weeks ago. 
He said to her, what are you talking about? I, I have no idea what you're talking about. She said, what? You forgot what happened two weeks ago? You were here in this house two weeks ago. I was yelling. I was cursing. I was insulting. You telling me you forgot? He said to his mother-in-law, maybe you had a bad dream. What kind of a dream? Don't you remember? I was screaming at you? What do you mean a dream? So he says to her, listen, if what you say is true, that two weeks ago I was here and you were yelling and screaming, don't you think I would remember something like that? And don't you think I would have told my parents and I would have told my wife, your daughter? And don't you think one of them would have somehow said something to you? And his mother-in-law says, hmm, come to think of it, you know, I actually saw your mother yesterday and we had a very pleasant conversation. She didn't say anything about this. Could it have been a dream? So this man concluded his story to Rabbi Biederman and he said, I don't know if my mother-in-law was really convinced that it was just a dream. But I could tell you this. Had I not decided it was a dream, things would have turned out very differently. And you see all these children and all of these grandchildren and all of these great-grandchildren, more than a hundred of my descendants, they are all because of this dream. They are all here in the merit that I decided that what happened didn't happen. What's real and what's not real? It's up to us to decide. And we should be very careful to choose wisely. My friends, I want to wish you a great evening and a beautiful Shabbos and a very, very happy Purim. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.